Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This is a very special episode because this show started off with me sitting in a room by myself trying to sound like Mike Duncan and also talking about the work of Mike Duncan. Today, in the final episode of season one or phase one of Everyday Anarchism, I am talking to Mike Duncan about the concepts behind Everyday Anarchism. I got a chance to talk to him before an event at Flyleaf Books in Chapel Hill. Thank you so much to Flyleaf for making this happen. Thanks, of course, to Mike for coming on the show. I've got a few more things planned for the next couple of months, including something on the World Cup with the soccer historian David Goldblatt. But for the most part, you're not going to hear much from everyday anarchism until the very end of 2022 or the beginning of 2023 and then i'm going to begin season two or phase two the show is going to come out every other week and it will last maybe for the entire year but i'm guessing it will peter out again and go on hiatus maybe about a year from now and then return in early 2024 that's the plan i've got a lot of exciting things planned for the next season or the next phase Ruth Kenna will be coming back to talk more about William Morris. We're going to explore the anarchism of math, uh, the anarchism of the Byzantine Empire, supposedly the opposite of anarchism, with the historian Anthony Caldellis. We'll talk about the Paris Commune. We'll talk about Voltairine de Clare, all sorts of fun things. In the meantime, anything you can do to help the show, leaving reviews on Apple or Spotify, telling a friend, going to everydayanarchism.com and signing up for my newsletter, or giving a financial contribution, all that stuff would help so much. Now, here's my talk with Mike at Flyleaf. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. Mike Duncan, did you know you were on the podcast Everyday Anarchism right now? Uh, I have recently become aware that I am on the podcast Everyday Anarchism. <laughs> so uh, we, <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm here with Mike Duncan, um, who happens to be in town at Chapel Hill at the university that I'm teaching at now, UNC Chapel Hill. And he's uh, giving a talk about uh, Lafayette, I guess, the hero of two worlds, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at Flyleaf, the local bookstore, and we're in the in the back of Flyleaf recording a podcast. We are, and I am on. Uh, I'm about two and a half weeks into a three week tour, and I have been in a different city at pretty much every day of that tour. Uh, so I never quite know where I am or what I'm doing, uh, and I'm a little bit, uh, you know, rummier and a little bit more off kilter than I usually am. So that's the uh, version of me that everyday anarchism is about to get. Well, that sounds great. Yeah, I, we agreed that that would be a more fun interview than it would have been at the beginning of this tour when I was more staid and serious yeah, and well, hadn't just been like getting on and off of airplanes for three weeks straight. I think I, I'm a huge fan of of your podcast, Mike. I would not have started podcasting if not for your podcast. <laughs> That's However, really great to hear. You do have a more uh, staid vibe than I do, and so I'm happy to have a less staid Right, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is a little bit of Mike Duncan after dark. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> you know, this is the 10 p.m. show, not the 7 p.m. Yeah. show. <laughs> the, you, always, you know you've got the 10 p.m. show when you've got the uh, lemon, honey, gin. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. That's yeah. just mm -hmm. that's what we're doing. Yep, just doing um, shots of hot tea here. Okay, so um, 
I've had a few topics drawn up um, that I didn't get a chance to share with you, but I was going to start by um, talking to you about, well, I want to see if you had anything to say in terms of um, anarchism and the Russian Revolution. I thought we could start there if you want to. <clears throat> sure. I was very unhappy at how little Kropotkin was in in the uh, Russian Revolution. I understand that he was living in England, man. He was writing. He was he was very pop. He's very popular in the Anglo sphere, um, and I think that when it comes to his actual influence in the Russian Revolution, there was it is less pronounced than I think that other strains of anarchism and other leaders of anarchism. I think that Krop I love Kropotkin. I've read lots of Kropotkin in my life, um, but I just kept not seeing him show up in kind of the reading lists of these various groups or like who was actually influencing their thinking. Um, and so, yeah, he, and, you know, obviously he comes back after the revolution and he dies there and there's some very nice things that go on between him and like Emma Goldman and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, he didn't show up and I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Every, everyday anarchism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're right in terms of the uh, events that you're covering. It is after, it is, uh, you know, after the, the, the second Russian, if, we, if there's the one in 1905, and then there's the two, there's two, revolutions yeah, right later on. So it's the it's the Kerensky after the Kerensky Revolution, provisional government, whatever we're calling it, that that Kropotkin shows up and is briefly, briefly more influential, although it's it's pretty brief. Um, yeah, he's and he's old at this point. You know, he's yeah, yeah he's he's past his prime. You know, he's uh, he'd been living most of his life, you know, in exile in various forms, um, and all of his books had kind of been written by that point. Yeah. Yeah, there's not, I, there isn't too much of his story, except that, I mean, I like to tell the story that he was, you know, in some ways, perhaps had more freedom under the czar than he did under Lenin, except for his, uh, except for his immense influence at that point. Lenin knew he couldn't touch him. Goldman, at least, is pretty sure that Lenin would have come for him if Lenin could have gotten away with it. Right, yeah. I mean, there there is a whole thing where, it, like, having studied a lot of, um, you know, the police, the repressive police apparatus of the czarist regime and the repressive police apparatus of the Soviet regime, and one of them does actually seem quite a bit more uh, broad and deep and effective, right? Because one of the things about the czar's police apparatus is that, you know, they would get these guys that are like, uh, they're like chucking bombs at like members of the royal family and it's just like year and a half administrative exile and then you can do whatever you want. Like, it actually wasn't that... Um, you know, like that brutal. They weren't just murdering people wholesale. Like, like a lot of it was like, I mean, Lenin got three years for trying to overthrow the government. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's probably true that Kropotkin uh, had it easier under Tsar Nicholas than he would have under Lenin. I think one of the things just those of us who grew up in the 20th and 21st century, I really think we do fail to understand how much more efficient bureaucracy is now than it used to be yeah. We, oh yeah 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 <laughs> when, when we imagine a tyranny in the past we imagine it that something that looks like a tyranny would look like in the 19th or 20th century and that's ridiculously un, untrue i've been <laughs> corresponding with some roman historians or historians of the roman empire who like they've looked at the provincial government and been like provincial governments in rome have like seven guys. Yeah, yep, yep. It's it's a, it's a governor, it's a small staff and that's pretty much it. And I was actually just reminded of this. I just I'm I'm writing these uh, sort of like appendices to wrap up the revolution's podcast. I'm kind of like re-reviewing all the material and trying to derive some lessons from it. And you know, specifically talking here again about Tsar Nicholas is their their censorship regime. Um, I did wind up 
reading a, quite a bit, you know, not, I don't even think like a full book on this, but it, it was, it was a big part of one of the books that I read. Um, there was kind of the details of the czar censorship office. And it was that, I mean, it's, it's like, it was like 25 guys and they were nameable. They were just employees. This was the job that they had to do. And they were in charge of reviewing like every scrap of paper that needed to be, uh, that needed to be either approved or censored. And so the idea that the czar was running this like incredibly repressive, I mean, obviously they were doing censorship and obviously printing presses are being shut down and like the police are investigating things and the Okrana is like pretty effective at infiltrating things. Um, but so much is just getting by these guys because it really is just like two dozen people totally, you know, like understaffed, overworked, you know, uh, they're threadbare in their minds. And, you know, the, the revolutionaries out there and dissidents out there knew every trick in the book. And they were not, for example, even bothering to check with daily publications. Like if it was a daily press, they were like, it's we can't we can't even handle it. So like the streets are flooded and and these uh, these columns would be full of like, oh, the czar and his repressive censorship regime. <laughs> and you're like, there is no censorship regime. And everybody's everybody can knows that there's no censorship. That the censorship regime is bad uh, because there isn't one. Right. And that this is definitely one of the things is the actual size of the czarist state was so small and it was so incompetent and it was so overworked um, that, yeah, you just like, OK, I, I, th- this is important for me and my my project, you know, the drawn from Kropotkin and Graeber and the idea that sort of everything always functions in some ways kind of anarchically, which is to say, if you want to have a government that runs things, you can never do that entirely with bureaucracy and a staff. You're always going to need people collaborating and cooperating. And if you look at a, a dictatorship or whatever you want to call it, like the czar, it's really not this kind of top-down administration that we would Im- imagine the governments that the anarchists would be rebelling against. Right. Yeah. Because even inside of those units, people have to come together without direction and decide for themselves in conversation with each other. Well, how are we actually going to get this done? Um, and the people and one of the things that goes on here, which I'm sure you've probably observed in your own life, is that the people at the top have no idea what's going on <laughs> at any level because everybody is afraid of losing their job. Mm-hmm. And so you're kicking up bad information. And it's one of the paradoxes of power that once you get to a certain level, you no longer have any idea what's happening out there because people are just feeding information up the ladder that is going to allow them to keep their jobs and please their superiors. And so people are making decisions in these inner circles of power, like do this, do that. And then it goes back down. They're like, well, that doesn't conform at all to like what's actually going on here. So yeah, we are going to have to figure this out for ourselves. And then, you know, concoct a bunch of lies (laughs) to send back up the ladder as we try to like do this stuff. And yeah, I think that there is um, in terms of like uh, the, the practical management of our lives. Like this is where anarchistic principles come from is exactly. is that is that just like daily collaborative i mean families are pretty anarchistic right like i've got a i've got a, i'm married and i have two kids and you know supposedly <laughs> traditionally i'm like i'm supposed to be the patriarch of the family and obviously it's the 21st century so my wife and i are like co-equal partners um but it sure does seem like what we have for dinner is like a pretty anarchistic yeah. collaborative decision made also with the input of a 10 year old and a seven year old who are like oh well, like me and my wife will be like we're having this and they're like well i'm not eating that it's like okay well maybe we should do something else then um yeah i feel that yeah so that's the you know i sometimes say like the capital a anarchists or their political anarchists their argument is that you can maybe even should smash the government and then everything could work just fine um Mm -hmm. with that kind of anarchic principles like hey what should we have for dinner collectively whether or not 
that's true. I don't know. I'm much more interested in the way that all the systems we do have right now that we're constantly told have to work through some sort of top-down technology, yeah. bureaucracy, whatever. They're all anarchist anyways. Mm-hmm. Our families are anarchist. You know, Kropotkin says, you know, people say anarchism won't work, and then they go home to dinner. Yeah. And, <laughs> so that it's, that and it, it does work, yeah, and we just yeah. and we just don't recognize it as such, yeah. You know, the stuff I don't like mutual aid, yeah. I used you as an example of someone... Um, missing the everyday anarchism and when you when you're talking about uh when you were talking about protesting in france and you say that you got between the police and the the black block right the anarchists and i said actually you know okay there's 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 a group of you know hardcore capital a anarchists here and then there's a plucky everyday anarchist named mike duncan who doesn't want to mix it up with the cuffs but it's literally out on the street saying saying no to government yeah well i what was i saying no to i wasn't saying no to oh i, I was saying no to something the government was trying to do yes right i that, so sorry not not saying no to government like, right there shall be no more government right i not voting not through any channels i'm going to go out on the street yep. and protest until i get what i want and right at least metternich would consider that anarchism right well yeah but metternich thinks everything is an anarchism man what does metternich know about anything he dead he dead you're in the ground man um but uh yeah so macron would consider that anarchism then yeah 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 well god you know (laughs) that guy what was he even doing like why why would you provoke something like that i don't know i don't know why he's deciding now is the right time to do these things um but that was a part of that was the transit strike um that actually led right into covid um the, the the transit workers went on strike for like three months uh, at the end of 2019 um, and yeah though but the, it was very interesting being stuck but so you're calling the black block people Cap- I mean I mean it, it, I mean like if they're even capital a anarchists because because it's I mean it's not, yeah it's and not clear at all mutual aid and everything you know but also like, like they are there they were there in a group to um, you know, do probably property destruction and kind of like cause a little bit of havoc. And, you know, I understand why they're there, but then there's also a SWAT team uh, that is, you know, going to be clashing with them. And yes, I do want to remove myself from yeah. that situation because I'm a middle-aged man and I'm not looking to get into fights like that. It's exactly. Yeah. And we shouldn't, and we shouldn't think, I don't think we should, that should be our default of there, there, there's a time and a place for the black block. I mean, something like Hong Kong, like, of right. course, that's different. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, okay. I'm a big fan of the, the old school, mid 20th century, nonviolent resistance mass movement. And I, you know, to me, I mean, Gandhi says he's an anarchist. King is not going to claim anarchism for a variety of reasons, but King is obviously an anarchist. So I want to move the focus away from from the black block to your to your Mike Duncans, your middle-aged men are just like, we're not, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're not going to take this anymore. If, if, Screw this. If, if only we can get power to middle-aged white men. <laughs> oh, oh on, man. I do know, I do know, I do know what you mean. <laughs> um, it is true, though. I think we might be better off with power in middle-aged white men instead of, you know, only people above the age of 70. Um, oh, no, that, that's that's actually really true. Um, and that's actually come up a couple times on this, on this tour that I've been on people have been like what do you think about what's going on and it's like one of the things i think is going on is that the leadership is all 85 years old and we do part of our dysfunctional political system is i think the gerontocracy yeah. that is settled in and i think that those decisions that are made at the t- very very tippy top of our system right now are being made by people who are so like fundamentally like out of touch and not in an unreasonable way like i don't mean like you're so out of touch like as a pejorative
supportive. It's just like you're 85 years old, you know, and if you're still having your emails printed out for you, <laughs> like it's time to pass the reins to people who understand that climate change is a thing that matters, that economic inequality is a thing that matters, that we've got a homelessness crisis that is like, you know, sweeping this country. I've been like, I've been everywhere now. Um, and I was up in Portland and I was in Seattle and I was in Denver and every place that I have gone, I was in Austin and I see this every single place that I go. Um, new construction, crazy new high rises, uh, really rich condominiums that are going up and it's there are these glass palaces that are going up everywhere and then on the streets it is homelessness and it is drug addiction and it is there, there is a social crisis that is happening down there so I've you know I've seen all of this in real time uh, and then yeah I look at the people that are that are uh, supposedly calling the shots and you know they just don't even they don't even recognize any of this they don't even see any of this as a problem or they're just like well why don't you why don't you just get a job and get a and buy a house like I did you know in 1957 the one the one exception for me i mean you're welcome to disagree is like joe biden is so old that he thinks he's living in the new deal era and that in that fact is <laughs> this is true i you know i spent a, i this is actually a really interesting thing i went up i went up to maine um, and I did, I was the keynote speaker for a, like a gala fundraiser for the Henry Knox Museum. They invited me up here and it was these very, it was these very nice old people who, um, uh, who were doing this benefit and who summered up in Maine. Like just imagine the kind of old yeah. people who summer in Maine. These are the people who are hosting me. And they're all, they're, most of them were Republicans and I'm talking to them and they're sort of, they're feeding me their version of what America looks like. You know, the cities are in decay and we, you know, we're being overrun by illegal immigrants and I'm sort of like nodding along with this and one guy actually did said and why you know why couldn't you know we got to finish the wall and this is the point where i stopped being polite and just burst out laughing and i was like what are you talking no the wall what the fuck are you talking about man um but one of the things that happened in there is i started talking to them about what i've seen out there on the road and and put and pitting it uh, excuse me putting it in new deal terms like what we need is a robust government response to this social crisis like you're saying that america is falling into decay what if I granted that proposition and told you that a very good solution to this is the New Deal? And they all grew up in the 40s. And so they grew up under the umbrella of the New Deal. And when I put it in those terms, they were like, oh, yeah, because when they think back nostalgically on their childhoods, that is the New Deal era. This is an era of big government. This is a this is an era of mass unionization, um, which right now they would probably all say that the unions are the death of America. But it's like when, when you chart their description of the decline of the United States and you chart the decline of union membership in the United States, they sync up. I don't know if anybody's ever noticed this out there on the right, but they do sync. I mean, it's obviously a correlation that has a little bit of causation because yeah. we lost a robust middle class and uh, institutions that actually fight for people that are not at the very tippy top of the socioeconomic ladder. Yeah, that seems that seems so obvious. And it does seem like that people are wandering around looking for an answer to this problem. And I mean, I have lots of answers. I have more futuristic type answers mm -hmm. like UBI and that sort of thing. Sure. But it just seems like the fucking New Deal. Run that shit. Again. Yeah, just yeah, yeah just let's a lot better than what we got. And it, it's and I would I would love to see it because right now I don't see sort of this you know, uh, we're living in this like post neoliberal era where I think that to the extent that neoliberalism had answers to anything, they've all petered out. It's like it's, clearly. it's just clear. It's a dead ideology. That's not really doing its work. And you know this, I was just talking to my friend, um, who lives in Atlanta, uh, but we lived in, in Washington and he grew up in Portland. So we, that's where we're from is the Pacific Northwest. And so when we look at Seattle and we look at Portland, um, 
we see places that you know Microsoft came into, Amazon came into, um, these major tech firms. You know, this is the same thing that's going on in San Francisco, and the the cities that we grew up in have become just like exponentially wealthier than they were. Like the, like the whatever the, to the extent there's a GDP, I guess it wouldn't be gross domestic product, but like to the extent that there is a wealth uh, uh, measure of say King County, which is where Seattle is, um, it's grown so, so, so much. And at the same time, we've got people wandering around who are too poor to find a place to live. And you would think if you had a place with that much money in it, where that much cash has been poured into this region, that one of the things that could be going on is, oh yeah, this is Seattle. This is one of the richest cities in the country. Everybody's got a house here. Everybody's got enough to eat. Like this is, this is a utopia in that way because we have the resources to do it. Jeff Bezos has the resources to make Seattle a humane place to live. And instead, it's the other thing. So clearly relying on um, you, you know, like the benevolent generosity of billionaires to answer our social problems, we can see in real time that it is failing, it is failing every day. It is not getting any better. And until there's some kind of and this is where look at look at where we are now, man, we're supposed to be talking about anarchism. And I'm getting ready to pitch you again on a large scale government intervention because this is sort of where my values always wind up taking me because I'm not sure that a completely sort of decentralized, like non-existent state apparatus is going to solve the problem that I see, which is a, having a dignified lives for every citizen and every you know human being that's on this earth, um, you know. Yeah, so this topic has come up, Mike, with almost every, like I don't want to say, like serious-minded left-leaning but non-anarchist person who comes on this show. I mean, look, even Kim Stanley Robinson, who is pretty much an avowed anarchist, he was like, Graham, I hate to say this, but we need some sort of Keynesian New Deal type thing because we we had our chance to run some kind of anarchist playbook maybe in the 60s and you know we they we didn't they they didn't and i think that it happened for a variety of reasons that makes it so insanely difficult to do it um well since since we're here maybe i can ask you this because i have i've always had this question which is okay so covid comes through right and i'm sure you've thought a lot about this um so what happens in a global pandemic like this where you do need to have public health measures and people need to do things that maybe they don't feel like doing on their own uh and it does like when i was going through 2020 and 2021 it did seem like you know i don't need like a coercive police state you know running but as we decided like there is no such thing as a truly coercive police state in that way um but if 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 america had left decision making to all individuals like doesn't covid just sweep through us and annihilate us because there aren't enough centrally um, agreed upon rules that are being handed down and enforced to to keep public health the way it is so what's the anarchist answer yeah. to covid so i have a you know i have a short again this came up a lot in the early days of this podcast yeah, I'll bet. When it was yeah. Still, we were still i'm not a religious <laughs> listener of the show so i haven't listened to these episodes yet and i'm very sorry about that i will certainly if you want to just direct me to the episodes where you talk about this yeah um, no, i mean it's, it's good because you know so actually i had my dissertation director on the show and he and i you know hashed this out okay um and he you know his take is basically like it it simply wouldn't work and i guess what i sort of what i sort of ended up with arguing with him is so, something that's public health can and should be 
completely decentralized, and the invention of public health was by people like Jane Addams, who, you know, was not an anarchist, was merely a nonviolent Tolstoyan, which is to say an anarchist who doesn't use the word. And right. Anarchists invented public health, and eventually it got taken over by this medical establishment and got integrated into all of the halls of power, and so far, fine, I guess. Once you've done it that way, when something like COVID comes along, there you can't defeat the pandemic with mutual aid. You can't defeat yeah. the pandemic in a decentralized way because you have destroyed okay. every path right. for yeah. decentralization. So this is like, do I think we could have handled COVID in a totally anarchist way when it showed up? No, absolutely not. Do I think if we had decided to run public health the way it was invented in the late 19th century in a fairly anarchist way and had it all be decentralized, could we have handled COVID a lot better? Yes. Yeah. If that, so if that makes any sense. Yeah. So the, the yeah yeah. But basically, like the conditions of 2020, like we all live in the real world, and so you just have to understand, like this is the system as we're facing it. Um, all right. All right. And I would, you know, I still look. I still couldn't believe my neighbors who just seemed like they wanted to just round up everyone who wasn't wearing a mask and put them into prison. I tried to explain to them that that actually would cause a lot more COVID than just letting those people range free. Right, and, and yeah. It's like top-down police yeah, but I mean, but but I did it. It, it, it was very interesting because I, I did the year of COVID, uh, you know, OK, let's be clear. COVID's still happening. Like, we do know this. I I know we, we now talk about 2020 like, oh, it's all in the rearview mirror. Like, I do understand that it's happening. I will, I, we're obviously in a different era, though. I don't right. We're we're, we're in. You it's, and I are talking face to face, not wearing masks. That would not have. Been I know. Well, I got COVID like six weeks ago, so yeah. I'm not afraid of getting it again. Oh, man. But so so I did 2020 in France. Um, and so I watched sort of the difference between the U.S.'s response to COVID and France's response to COVID. And, you know, uh, you know, if you know anything about sort of like how um, political systems exist and do comparative political systems, France is, is a model of a highly centralized national state. Like everything is run out of Paris. Oh, it's, yes. it's, it's it's departments. It's not even fed like Germany is even a federal system. Um, you know, France doesn't have any of that. It's, pr it's purposely very, very centralized and decisions made at the top are just like, boom, instantly, you know like applicable to the whole country versus something like the United States, which is so insanely like a nesting, nesting dolls yeah. of, of jurisdictions and counties and cities um, and different school boards. And, you know, you, once one school board wants to do this and one school board wants to do that, this school, this superintendent <laughs> believes that COVID is real. This superintendent <laughs> believes it's, that COVID is not real. And there was, you know, in watching that, like my wife and I talked about how we much we were glad that we went through COVID, you know, in France, as opposed to the very, very chaotic response. And I think uh, in many ways, the decisions making that were that were made in the United States were just flat out wrong. And we watched um, people prioritize keeping bars and restaurants open while closing all of the schools. And France did the opposite of that. Like they took the hit like they they said, I mean, they shut down all the bars and cafes in Paris. Like you're talking about like the money making engine and you're and also talking about the livelihoods of all these people. But what did they do alongside that? They paid them. 
all. Yeah. They just said, send us your payroll and we will cover it, which does, which did go on eventually in the United States by the summer of 2020. I do think that that bill that came out, the relief bill that came out, um, did actually do a lot, right? It, there is, there is, I think, kind of this myth that like, oh, we just gave everyone a thousand dollars or whatever the, whatever the <laughs> number is, but it was actually quite a bit more robust than that in the end. But there was it was something of a relief to be like there are people at the top of this highly centralized pyramid who believe that this is real and the things that they are doing are measures that they believe and i i I do honestly believe that macron and those people were honestly trying to do their best like i don't think that in that moment they were sitting there like oh well you know let's just let's just do things on behalf of capital i think that they were thinking to themselves you know this might be the end of civilization and it would be awfully nice if we could try to maybe stop that i i do maybe i'm naive uh but i do think that that was going on and uh and so we were we were happy to be living in france in 2020 and not in the united states which seemed like a you know i don't know if i can swear on your show it seemed like a real shit show sir yeah it was it was a real shit show and again and if if you want to just accuse me of you know whatever like intellectual dishonesty go ahead i would argue that the problem is that we have inculcated a, a, a terrible right wing you know virus of rugged individualism or whatever you want to call it in this country that makes something like top down technocratic solutions the only option the only way to the only way to get those people to do social good yes because you have you basically have to impose uh, the the idea of social good on them but then my okay. argument yeah is, no, i think i know where this is going my argument is it's actually a lot of people on the left or the whatever you want to call them the technocrats the obama types whatever who cannot imagine someday reaching those people and bringing them into some sort of mutual aid but just thinking like you know what we need experts and there's idiots on both sides and we just got to put those idiots in jail or restrain them right in some way or threaten them that they're going to lose their jobs and starve and die and that's okay because we are right right man does that solution look necessary in 2020 but it sure as hell wasn't necessary when you started running that playbook in 1980 when you right Reagan, right and then you create the, uh, the, the only option is a Macron-style solution. Although, again, Germany in some ways did pretty well with a... I mean, it, was a it was a federal system, but it's the Germans, man. Like, <laughs> the, German, the Germans did fine, yeah. you know? But, they, but I cannot tell you how many people explained to me that the Germans were doing great because Merkel was in charge and they had a great top-down technocratic system. And then I tried to explain to them that actually I had been reading about the actually different COVID policies that were then sort of coordinated and agreed upon from a somewhat bottom-up way in Germany and then these yeah because it's because it's a federal system you know you know yeah it's not just Merkel the genius like we do we do yeah I think you're right that like liberal technocrats have this desire to create heroes of uh, of those they tried to turn fauci into like yeah. you know I mean which which happened because the right was trying to turn him into this villain so yes. it became like we must protect fauci at all costs but it's like these they're just people yeah um, so this is another way that I again perhaps unwisely I want I want to serve as like a gadfly to point out all the ways that you know science has gone wrong and Fauci has gone uh, Fauci has made mistakes which I would take Fauci over anyone else 
in terms of making decisions during the pandemic. But the like, he's not a fucking saint. Exactly. He, he's not. We should not worship him. We should not worship science. We should not worship Barack Obama. We should not worship the Democratic Party. We should not worship Vladimir Zelensky. But it, I see a like yeah. team red and team blue. And of course, I'm going to throw my lot in with team blue. But I don't want to be on a team in that sense in in either way. And I feel like the average moderately affluent, highly educated white liberal in my position does just want to be in that team and would maybe be happy with the new civil war if they were sure they were going to win. I mean, maybe that's going too far, but sometimes it doesn't it seem to you like the left-wingers wouldn't mind an American civil war also, or at least they at least would be happy if Texas sank into the ocean. Uh, yeah, I mean, you the, the people who I see eager for a civil war are on the right. Okay. Um, Most, as, sure. It, like, like more than the left. What, what I see on the left, or, and not really in, like, in, in really left spaces, you don't see it, like, I don't really get it that much. Right. But there is that sort of, like, um, from centrist liberals yeah. being like, oh, why can't, well, maybe we should just let the Confederacy secede. Yes. You know, I'm so sick of dealing with these people. Why not just let them go? And you're just like, do you know how many good people you would be trapping behind the lines if you did something like that? And this is like where I, why I don't want a civil war, yeah. why I'm not sitting here saying we need a national divorce because the divide in this country in the United States right now seems to be very like rural urban. And, you know, Atlanta exists. And here, like we're in Chapel Hill. This exists. Um, you know, uh, Austin exists. People in Houston exist. And if you just say like, oh, yeah, Texas, go off and do whatever you want and not even have anything resembling a civil rights regime keeping, you know, Abbott in check. Um, I'm not willing to cast those people into the sea like that just so that I can have a, you know, so I can feel like a, um, I, I don't want to deal with that problem anymore. So. You know, I, I see it being said, but I don't think that any white affluent liberal actually <laughs> wants civil war um, because but they do want the moral high ground in a way that I don't want to cede them. Yeah. Well, they've certainly got the moral high ground over Very most strong. of the Republican Party. Yes. Yeah. I mean, not all of them, but but for sure they do. And but w- what they the, the myopia that exists in that group. And I say this knowing these people very well because this is where I come from. Yeah. These are my people. Yeah. Um, is that they have they want to have the moral high ground to compared to everybody, and they're like we're right, and because we are opposing the Republican Party, that means that whatever we believe must be the best and greatest thing that is out there. And I think that that's not actually true, and they are as open to critiques as anything. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the the idea that we're so smart and they're all so dumb is one of the things that I think. Um, undermines I think what you're talking about which is a kind of a general social solidarity and mutual aid where if you're walking around thinking that this person that I'm talking to is stupid and needs to be told what to do because they're so dumb as opposed to engaging with them and uh, and figuring out a solution to some local problem or something that we're talking about that they are a peer and an equal as opposed to a subordinate and an underling or like oh well you've only got a GED and I've got a master so that means that I'm in like I'm in charge um, there are lots of situations that I have been in uh, with my advanced degree where I'm absolutely looking to the dude with the GED to lead the way on something because I don't know anything about how to get like across this river let's say um, and I, I think that that does go on a lot. And there is a there is a kind of uh, passive aristocratic mentality that do, is destructive of the kind of mutual aid that you're talking about. What do you think? Getting back to like your your rugged individualism that America has is liberalism does celebrate individualism so much. 
but we can't as and this we can get back to what you know and i'm I, this is this is straight out of bakunin which is that we can't be individuals unless we're in a group mm-hmm. yes, um, where exactly. if if you if you take a human being and just stick them in the wild as an individual, first of all, they're dead in like two days. Right. They're not actually going to live through that. But unless you have somebody to talk to, unless you have you know language to actually express your thoughts, um, unless you're able to to get other things that, that express your own individualism, you need uh, you need a group. You need to be in a group to have something like that happen. And that's the part that America is missing is individ- not individualism solely as, you know, I'm going to get mine and this is, this is a, you know, this is a fight tooth and nail um, of all individuals against all individuals. That's not actually how humans work. And that's also not how we've been evolutionarily selected. If, you know, the rugged, the true rugged individualists of, of our gene pool were weeded out like 5 million years ago because they were like, I'm going to go do my own thing. And then we never saw them again because they just wandered off into the forest and died. Well, the people who stuck together and work together actually made the species um, into a virus that took over the entire planet and then ruined it. Oh, hmm. <laughs> well, that got dark. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, look, this is this is in my thoughts lately. Certainly, the the only thing I want to say to add to that is just like there is the before we get to the extinction of the species. I do want to, you yeah. know, using arguments made by people like Richard Rorty or Nancy Fraser, blame you know the white. Well, it doesn't have to be white, but mostly white meritocratic elite who did not mind at all that what is now called the white working class or real Americans or formerly the yeoman farmer, whatever you want to call them, did not mind their livelihoods being destroyed by Wall Street in, you know, the 90s and the 2000s. The professors and the lawyers and the doctors did not lift a hand to help the people who were losing their jobs to, you know, corporate capitalism. And then when those people, the the, the people who are the villains in this, you know, to America's side, rise up it's i i like to be in the position to say you know these people are in many ways horrible and maybe they are deplorable but also you are in collusion with the billionaires running this country against them and now you're really mad at them now that they've got their trumpist champion or or whatever yeah i mean that that whole business is like um you know i mean like i i would not go down the road of saying that there's a causal connection between worsening economic conditions and an explosion of populist misogynistic racism in the United States, because I think that that misogynistic racism that is in that community that we're hearing that is going for Trump um, is present, whether or not we have a robust, you know, like like you take the 60s, like there is a robust middle class in the 60s, right? They all these people did have really good jobs. And all of them were also like, ah, damn, Polacks, they're ruining everything, right? They were like, they hated the they hated Poles on top of everything else, which like, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, It it has never made any sense to me. And of course, then I come from, uh, okay, so I come from a from an affluent background. Okay, Um, and I'm from a I'm actually from Redmond, Washington, Um, like Microsoft was planted in my backyard when I was like six years old and I watched it grow up. Uh, my dad was a lawyer. My my uh, my mom worked in the school system. So I'm from that like professional liberal class and I've been on golf courses, 
and some of the most racist shit I have ever heard in my life is I'm not hearing it from the the trucker who lost his job or like the steel worker who, you know, had his job outsourced. Like I'm hearing it from some of the most successful people, the people that are benefiting the most. And I'm, I'm from the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, I'm this era of, you know, people like are like you remember the 90s, right? Yes. Like yeah, like like we're get we're getting to the point where like trying to explain what the 90s were like <laughs> to people, especially the white 90s. Well, I come from the white 90s where I was like, the, the you know, the biggest crisis we faced was like Seinfeld was ending. Um, it was called the end of history. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, I, I broadly see these two things as being somewhat separate from each other. Um, and so I and I, I don't call it a backlash at all, um, because what I think what we're seeing right now is a return to form. It's a it, 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 it to the extent that it's a backlash to the 60s, like it kind of is. But that is saying like, oh, well, if you know, if it wasn't for civil rights or if it wasn't for gay rights or if it wasn't for the women's liberation movement, then like none of we wouldn't be saying and doing the things that we were doing. It's like, but you were saying and doing all of those things for like 400 years, which is why there was a civil rights movement and why there was women's liberation and why there was a gay rights movement, which happened in the middle of that. And now we're sort of reverting to form. But, you know, I think that the the sort of the economic distress argument of, of, of explains a little bit of the energy behind Trump. Uh, but I think that that stuff, that's, that meant those mentalities are existing free and clear of whether or not you're a winner or a loser in today's economy. And if you get into those cigar rooms, those, those whiskey bars that those guys, um, I, I just spent some time with people and they dropped some things that they, they will, it was super casual. Um, and all those people are doing great. So Guys, I'm, just, I'm just gonna is, I'm just gonna say that this back is to you. An even more pessimistic reading than mine is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well. Okay. Well. Here. Here's my. Here's my. My positive reading though is that I think that all of this is is invented by the human mind. Um. And I think that all of it. I don't think that any of this stuff is necessarily uh, genetically encoded on the human race. I don't think that this is uh like like racism and misogyny. Um, you know, a, a world of, of vast economic inequality and cruelty uh, uh, against each other, um, I don't think is akin to the uh, oxygen or the need uh, to eat food or sleep once per day or have our hearts beat, which are all like very natural things that we can't actually escape. I think that a lot of this stuff does exist, is inventions and social inventions. And because they exist socially uh, and because they are things that we, um, we have created, they can be uncreated. Like, I do think that a lot of this stuff could be deconstructed. You know, I grew up on Star Trek, right? And Star Trek is obviously a um, is is a utopian future, and it took a nuclear war for them to get there. And the more that I watch Star Trek now, the more I'm like, yeah, but is that really something we can do? Just be like, screw it, we don't have money anymore. Um, but I I definitely maintain a very hopeful stance that we can keep. Uh, hammering away at these things and knocking them down. And I, I think that in a lot of ways, I mean, it, we, we are going through a very sort of depressing reactionary phase and we are living in a bit of an age of reaction right now. And I think that a lot of the motor force of it's very, it's like, it's so it's very clear that Republicans, especially the MAGA movement are on offense and liberals and the Democrats are just playing defense. It's like, it's a holding pat. It's, it's a holding move for them. It's a rear, it's a rear guard action to try to hold the line. Um, but I think that on a lot of fronts, uh, especially when I look at how the kids are doing these days, I'm like, they don't 
give a crap about a lot of the things yeah. that that uh, that people of our generation even gave a crap about. And if that kind of stuff does start bubbling up from the surface, then maybe you know in, in 50 years we're looking back on this and we're saying, yeah, that was a really rotten time. I mean, and that's my hope. Like my dream for our society right now. Like I was thinking about what am I going to be saying or what do I want my son who's 10 to tell his grandkids, right? When, when he's an old man and he's talking to his grandkids, what kind of story is he telling? Is he telling a story that makes his grandkids go, what? It was like that. That's amazing. You took a shower every day because there was water. And he's like, yeah, there was water. And I flipped a switch and there was, there was just light. The lights came on and they were like, wow, grandpa, that's amazing. That's one story. The other story is you, you had to live through what? Like what kind of degradation and filth that you, yeah, like, yeah there was just plastic bottles everywhere and there was just garbage heaped up and we let people live in the streets. And they're like, grandpa, that's, that's horrific. How did you live with them? Like, I don't know. It's just how we lived. Um, I do think that there's a version of getting him, uh, of seeing my son at 80. So let's say like 75, 80 years from now where he's telling a story where this is just the most like rotten thing that a, a person 80 years from now could imagine living through. And I think that that's, you know, that's not pessimistic. That's looking at this and saying we can do so, so much better than this. And we probably should. So, um, one thing I've been thinking about a lot as we're watching, um, I guess the last thing I wanted to say is one of the things you've talked about, I don't think in these appendices, but in other episodes uh, in the past is, or maybe this was on Twitter, something like, you know, it's going to happen, right? Like the elites can uh, make room for change or change will be made. In other words, right. there's all sorts of scenarios in which revolutions do not break out right. in times like these where right. things are building, but there's not really any scenarios in which things don't change. 100%. You can, you yep. can divert the volcano or release the pressure or something, or the volcano can explode. But just like, nah, put the push push it down even more. And no, that's that's not gonna happen. Yeah, and I think this is this will be a good way to go out because this does call back to the fact that we are living with this gerontocracy that I do absolutely believe that um, what's driving so many of our elder boomers, right, who are my parents, right? I love these people to death. Like it's my it's my parents, it's their friends, it's my aunts and uncles, right? This is not like I'm not trying to do generational war here but I when I talk to them it's so much oh, I just wish it would go back to normal you know I wish it could go back to the way things were like their their mentality is to try to turn things back into something that will never exist again and can never exist again and they they're looking back to the past for inspiration for how the world should work and even though I'm sitting here as a historian right and I do look to the past to inform my decision making dude we need to look at the future we need to look at the present and plan for the future because change is here like there is no going back whatever that normal was that existed it is dead and gone and anybody under the age of 45 understands this implicitly and anyone over the age of 45 is just like oh but what no but I want to go back to how it was there is no going back to how it was because the change is here it's come climate change dude it's here it's done like it, the idea that we're going to stop it is over the idea that we are going to live with it and navigate it is uh that's the great question of our age and if we stay rigid and try to keep going backwards then yeah it's going to explode into a big bloody chaotic mess which i don't really want um but if we recognize it uh, and navigate it, and uh, uh, then maybe we can uh, manage our way through this thing and try to get my son sitting telling his 
grandkids about how shitty it was when he was growing up and how much better things are now. I don't know. That may is maybe a little naive, but it's it's the hopeful beacon that I have to sort of look forward to. We're, we're, we're hopefully heading to the United Federation of Planets. <laughs> right, always. You yeah, the, you get the great, the great neoliberal behemoth that just goes around and incorporates people against their will. It's what I love about Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine, and I don't want to, I won't give a spoiler, but it's all about f- trying to force Bajor into the into the um, Federation. And at the end, they said no. I like love, we, they rejected the Federation, I, and it was I great. I love Star Trek: The Next Generation, but man, is it also a, a, a technocratic? You, 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 you got to watch. You got to watch D- TNG alongside DS9, yeah. and that then you'll get the Maquis and Eddington, you know, actually criticizing, you know, what the, the what the Federation the stands for. The final one, it's not Star Trek, is Babylon Five, which is like the UN in space. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it takes the politics of Deep Space Nine to a whole other level. All right, all right, all right. yeah, they're kicking us out of here. I'm really. Really, really glad to be here. Signing some books or something. Enjoy your talk. I'm going to hit. This has been Everyday Anarchism with Mike Duncan. All right. All right. That is a wrap for my conversation with Mike Duncan and a wrap for phase one of Everyday Anarchism. You'll hear from me a couple more times in the next few months, and then I'll be back with phase two. Thank you to everyone who listened, who shared who donated, who left ratings, and of course, to the person who made all this possible, thank you to David Hill for giving me the theme song that, for many of you who email me, is your favorite thing about the show. It might be my favorite thing, too. Here's that music.